Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. We have been spending this morning sifting through some Ireland and New Zealand highlights over the years in preparation for our chat with Dennis Hickey and Neil Francis, who will both be in the studio very shortly. Mm. Most of the highlights, should be said, Murph, have been provided by the All Blacks. If you're into tries and flowing rugby and dishing out severe beatings, those kind of things. But if cringeworthy responses to tribal war dances are your thing, then look no further, Ken, mm. than Willie Anderson staring down the hacker in 1989 at Lansdowne Road. What's cringeworthy about that? You loved it, did you? Well, I thought it was good. I mean, I think there should always be something done to subvert the uh, hacker, which is which is completely cringe. It wasn't so much Willie and well, come on, Willie Anderson his jump in the air. Yeah, not so much jump in the air, but his exhorting of the crowd. See, the problem is you always know that Ireland are going to lose the match, so mm. it starts to look ridiculous. But it was more the reluctance of a lot of his teammates to follow him. So they all linked arms, and it should ideally have been some sort of a straight line, but it ended up as like this flying V formation with Willie Anderson at the front. Couple of the big guys either side. Mm. Your Donal Lennons. I don't know who else was involved that day. Uh, then it kind of padded further and further out to the two guys at the end, who were probably the wingers. Murph, if we we're I'm going go- by I'm, team I'm not going to name the player in question, but the guy closest to camera, wearing an Ireland jersey, really thought this was a bad idea. <laughs> thought this was the worst idea that he had ever heard, and what well, no, f- no, he may have been apologising to the nearest All Black as. Willie Anderson was charging towards the guy actually leading the hacker. It, really, I think this is this is a bad idea. There's long Kinda enough. You're not going to beat them. Yeah, you're not so you might as well have them, some fun before. But the if match. you're lucky, all the people will talk about in later years is mm. what you what is what you did that time. And there's enough there's enough uh, time between these matches to think of something special. You know the la- time. the last game that they had played before '89 was 1978. We hadn't played New Zealand in 11 years, so you know I suppose there is quite. A long, you're stewing over your response to the hacker there for over a decade. Mm. So in fairness to Willie Anderson and to the Irish nation, we came up with something something a little different. Dennis Hickey and Neil Francis have played against New Zealand and have obviously lost to New Zealand. Among those matches was the 1995 World Cup game that Neil was involved in. And 2001, uh, that was 
not necessarily on the scoreboard, but certainly in terms of how the game went, it was as close as we've ever come to beating them well ahead early in the second half, Dennis scoring a try. But ultimately, New Zealand did what they 14 points to up. do. Yeah, with half an hour. How was your trip to Poznan? Yeah? It was good. It was a good trip, yeah. Poznan, uh, nice. Nice town. Did the positive vibes follow the Irish squad? They certainly seemed to, from Dublin to Poland. They did. It was There was a very positive mood on among the journalists, but I think the journalists on this occasion outnumbered the fans. That was what the people of Poznan were a little disappointed about. Um, and they'd put a, all tricolours up around their bars and stuff and expecting, I don't know, probably at least a couple of thousand Irish fans. And there was pretty much nobody there at These all. guys are the best fans in the world. Surely they will follow a friendly international after it. Well, you know, what I thought was incredible actually was the applauding of the Irish national anthem mm. that really happened you know that was I, I honestly I was stunned because I just assumed that all of that kind of oh we love the Irish was uh, was either um, you know cynical sort of uh, Polish gombean men uh, <laughs> trying to play up trying to play Didn't up to their Dunphy was here. audience or or you know self uh, congratulatory self-serving Irish yeah. uh, media sort of reporting, oh, look, you know, we're incredible. But then, actually at this stadium, all around the ground, thousands of people were applauding the National Anthem, apparently spontaneously. I mean, I don't know how organized it was, but I just thought, that's amazing. I've never seen that happen before. The the closest thing I remember was the Irish fans, you know, singing the Marseillaise, but that was different. That was kind of like a joke. Everyone suddenly was like, oh, let's, you know, they soon realized this would be quite fun if we all did this. But this was kind of no. Like that real... was I was there, Ken, in yeah. the south of France that day. I think you were there, but in a professional there, yeah. capacity. I was there. In... No, I wasn't in a professional oh, well, capacity. I was in a... Well, I, I, did you not look down on me after that when I said, "Yeah, I was." Of course, I was one of the thirty thousand Irish fans jumping along to La Marseillaise. It's just such an amazing anthem. That's what that was. I was. That yeah. was getting caught up with just the, the one of the great anthems. Yeah, uh, you're, you're, we weren't trying to pass on a message to our French brethren. Listen. We forgive you yeah. for Why didn't you send more men in 1798? <laughs> yeah. Like, that was more, I really like this. This is a and really birth. good tune. There was some drink taken, I think. There, there was, was a lot. A lot. The there, um, so. But that, the Poland thing, really, I've never seen anything like it. And I thought it was uh, very nice for the Poles. We're going to be talking to US Murph about Len Bias today, who is one of these almost mythical figures now in US sports history. He was a college basketball player, a real top college basketball player who was just about to begin his professional career, Murph, when he died. Uh, he would be 50 this week. Yeah, he was basically Jordan-esque in college. Uh, it was two years, he was in college two years after Jordan finished up and uh, he was drafted second in the NBA draft by the Boston Celtics, who were the best team in, in basketball at the time. And everyone thought with this bit of business that the Celtics were going to go on and the Dynasty was going to continue on, basically uninterrupted uh, for the duration of Bias's career. So he was drafted uh, on June 17th, 1986, and in the early hours of June 19th, he died of a cocaine overdose in his University of Maryland dorm. So all of it is there, basically the, the tragedy of unfulfilled potential. Uh, the Boston Celtics went into decline from then. They had won the championship in 1986. They didn't win one again until 2008. The aftermath of his death was felt kind of far beyond uh, basketball uh, in, and it kind of was dragged into sort of the war on drugs, the Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan thing. So it's a very, very interesting story. We'll talk to you, Smurf, about that time now, though, to delve into the not-so-illustrious history of Ireland matches against New Zealand, including that Willie Anderson hack-a face-down match in 1989. Well, I haven't seen that before, one challenge being met by another. I remember the six old blacks had a hacker which said the New Zealand storm is about to break and sundry opponents have said 
since then. Well, you can say that again, but Willie Anderson got a great cheer from the uh, Irish crowd here. Naturally very partisan on this big occasion. Miller goes to ground. The referee playing the advantage. Ireland will have a penalty here. Humphreys! Max! What a terrific score for Kevin Max and for Ireland! Humphreys, O'Driscoll, almost there! Hickey, try! Humphreys dropped back into the pocket. He's right back in the pocket. Here it comes if he, as Whitelock sets it. It's away, and Ireland scramble it clear. Did she touch the flight? The no. pass was poor. No. Touch the flight. Oh, it's been oh, touched. I don't oh, think it was. This is a huge touch call from Nigel Owens. He's the only man that would have seen it. Into the last minute of the test. Another drop kick coming up on the left boot this time. Well, they did ultimately win, as they always do. Unfortunately, some highlights there of Ireland against New Zealand in 1989, 2001, and the second test last year, where we nearly got a victory out of nowhere. Really, Neil Francis and Dennis Hickey, you're both in the studio, lads. Thanks very much for coming in. Dennis, a try score in one of those games. Not the 1989 game, it was 2001, <laughs> Dennis, we should probably stress. We're actually looking at this. Your two Ireland careers didn't overlap, but Leinster, two of you played together briefly? Briefly, yeah. yeah my first Leinster season, I think. What were your impressions of... A young One of the highlights Hickey. of your yeah. career, surely. Oh. <laughs> it was a bit too cool for his clogs. <laughs> um, no, he sat down. He sat down the back of the bus, so he was uh, he was in, trying to get into the clique, marking his away. territory straight away. Mm. It was quite the clique. <laughs> <laughs> Were you fascinated by New Zealand growing up by the All Blacks? Um, well, I think I think I suppose that's one of the big differences in between rugby then and rugby now, or even rugby in. Your, your original clip, the time and the exposure to the All Blacks was very limited. Um, they rarely came up here uh, for obvious logistical reasons and you know work, etc. And there wasn't um, the same uh, amount of opportunities for the Irish teams to go down there. So those games weren't covered either. So it was, and of course there wasn't then the Super 15 or the Super Rugby or whatever it's called now. Uh, so the exposure to New Zealand rugby and New Zealand, uh, the national national side and the Tri Nations, etc., wasn't what it is now. So it was a little bit more of a myth, a myth about them. Um, so yeah, like I was, I would have really enjoyed seeing them coming to Ireland where they would have come to Ireland as a as a schoolboy. I was at that game, the first game you talked about, the, right, the yeah. 89 game. I was at that match, um, and the the, the Leinster uh, game on the same tour, which Fanahir was playing in. Um, so, uh, but yeah, like that would have been, I suppose, the extent. The other times you would have seen them was, you know, 101 great tries and a few other, uh, if you had the 1987 World Cup, maybe, you know. Was that an exciting experience in 89 for Leinster playing against New Zealand, Neil? It was. They they picked a pretty strong side. We went okay, I'd say, for about 40, 50 minutes and then you know, just superior levels of fitness and a lot of things that was just their organisation, the noise, the you know, it's one of the things when you play against the old blacks there, it's just the yapping that they do to each other, just they're they're so efficient, you know, and that's one of the that's one of the key factors. Everybody knows what everybody's doing. And it's the team dynamic, team ethos, you know. So we had, you know, fifteen guys in the field and they had one team dynamic and you know, that's how they pull away. 
you played them in the 1995 World Cup as well, mm. which the main memory that we're talking about these games today, the main memory I have of that is, was it Gary Halpin scoring a try? <laughs> you might enlighten our listeners as to what he did afterwards. Well, uh, we had a, it was like a, a 1970s playbook, you know, penalties. And um, it was five yards from the line. And uh, it was just pick a pick a concrete mixer, and Gary managed to hold on incredibly, uh, you know, from a long pass. Got in, beat uh, Sean Fitzpatrick and Craig Dowd on the tackle, and got up. And then, as he was going back, gave them the two fingers. <laughs> and uh, I remember, I, I don't know who was uh, doing the commentary in RT, you know, and. and uh, so I came back with him and I just said, you know, everybody said, oh, there's Neil Francis, congratulations, Gary Halpin. And I was sort of saying, you've done it now. You've made them angry. <laughs> 43-19 but, final score. Well, I, I was really, because we scored three tries, you know, to get three tries against the All Blacks is quite difficult. You know, they're difficult to score against. And physically and up front, we put in a very good performance. Like, I mean, it was one of those matches where, you know, certainly up front, we thought these guys are flesh and blood. You know we can we can do it, and we sustained pretty good performance up until about sort of sixty. We can do it. Does that mean we can compete with them, or we can actually win this match? Because that's the thing, the, the nub of it. Does any Irish team ever go in there no. believing they'll win? Not we quite. we didn't, but we, again, we were quite happy with our with our performance. Team played reasonably well, gave away some stupid. Uh, you know, so I think uh, Brad's chipped the ball over a lineout. We won one of their lineouts, and he chipped it to Jonah. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know what happens, uh, and I, it, it was it was. You know, disappointing in the sense that, you know, we were very competitive and then, you know, they cut loose in the last five, ten minutes and then you look at the scoreboard and you say, that's, you know, that's, that does you can't reconcile our performance with the scoreboard. Yeah. But that's what, that's what they do. Dennis, did you go in maybe 2001 when you played that match at Clippy Play? That was a game, that try you scored put us 21-6 ahead. It was uh, along those lines. It's a series. At that point, you must have believed you were going to beat New Zealand. Yeah, see, I think if you you know, drew a line, a trajectory from, let's say, the 80s and 70s or whatever, probably up to even today, the expectations and the chances of, uh, and I think the belief that the team will have probably has changed along the way. And that's a lot to do with professionalism, uh, familiarity, you know, playing them regularly, um, all that sort of stuff. And um, uh, so I think, uh, you know, each step along the way, Ireland has got more and more belief about trying to beat the All Blacks and what's involved in beating the All Blacks. Um, uh, so I think we were probably, we probably would have had more belief in 2001 than the other game I played against, in the, pre- the first game I played against them was in 97, where we had very little belief. Um, and again, even at that stage, they weren't touring as much and not many guys would have played against the All Blacks who were playing that day. Uh, but by you know 2001, more guys had played you know, uh, you know, uh, against them and uh, would go on to play them against them a lot more. So we had a little bit more belief then. But um, you know, we found ourselves in a position, uh, a obviously in the lead. And this is one of the you know this is I suppose one of the, the milestones that you, that's at some point you know a team has to has to get to and then overcome. And we probably weren't equipped to being that far ahead and actually kind of thinking. You know, this is not a position that we anticipated probably be in 40, uh, 
30 minutes to go in the game yeah. and actually the, the, being able to deal with that and we probably weren't able to maybe deal with even that. three four years later you might have gotten exactly. had enough experience but yeah exactly and, and having the experience of being in that position you know that was so did thing. Ireland throw that away or do you remember was there a did you look did New Zealand just suddenly was there a switch flick and they actually just came at you and took the game I away I think there was a few things uh, Jonah was obviously playing as well that day I think he got in for at least two tries <laughs> in the last uh, in, in very quick in very quick succession and we kind of kept him very much at base in Oregon had been playing against him in one of his earlier games and had a fantastic game against him um, but a few moves he came in off his wing and he was just you know he was he was uh, you know very much still a serious force to be reckoned with um, but I was I suppose here's an, an, an interesting story mm. that kind of would show you the level of where we were at. In ninety in two thousand and eight, I was I was walking. Uh, I went up to see Felipe Contaponi, who was living in Kenilworth Square in uh, Ratgar. Kenilworth Square is where St Mary's School plays their matches, so he's living facing onto that. And I was on my way up to see him, and um, there was a game of rugby on being played, and uh, went in. It was the under thirteens match. Another 13, Marys were playing, I think, Clonkos or something like that in a schools game on a Wednesday afternoon. So, um, And in the game, I was watching it for 10, 15 minutes, and I noticed there was a ruck and defensive side, I think, let's say it was St. Mary's, or let's say it was Clonkos. They, you know, they had the pillar, A, B, C, you know, like the stuff that we see, you know, the professional teams doing. So pillar up, and then the first guy, second guy, and they all call, came up in a line. And this very organized defensive system. And I was thinking to myself, that's pretty impressive, 13 year olds. And we didn't have that in 2001. Mm-hmm. The, and I, I don't mean we didn't have it, like, no, no team had it. Yeah. Like, those, certainly no team in Ireland had it. Like, England had only just start getting a, started getting a defensive system through Phil Larder. Uh, he was brought in from Rugby League. And if we played them in November, that September, Matt Williams, who, who had been our coach at the time, had been back in Australia this summer. And he brought in some of these calls. And we'd, we'd actually had a, a one-day defensive system. Matt Williams had been brought in, um, and to see, you know, if we could put some put something in place for the All Blacks, like three days later, and we actually thought we were, you know, we weren't doing too bad, even getting to that stage, and wishing oh, if only we had a couple of weeks now to put in a defensive system takes takes a season to actually get it right. But that's where rugby was at at the time. That's where Irish rugby was at at the time. That was a national side. We were well prepared, relatively speaking. But we didn't even have a defensive system. We had a very old-fashioned style of, you know, drifting or flat up. And I remember in that game in particular, there's a there's a moment when Chris Jack and we had them like we were we had New Zealand under the cosh at the time, and Chris Jack picks a ball up at pillar, what would be regarded as pillar, and like Peter Stringer standing there, and he just bulldozes over and scores. And you know, five years later, six years later, an under thirteen team would not let <laughs> the smallest guy in that position. And mm. that's just where rugby was at the time. And New Zealand were still far ahead of us at that point. Well, this is it. They always seem to be ahead of everybody. Even what you talked about there, the communication on field. Not that other teams didn't communicate with each other in around 1989, Neil. But it's even the way you talk about that Leinster against New Zealand game, they were doing things a little bit differently from how other countries might have. Yeah, like, I mean, we, we, we could do most of the things that were being done in world rugby, you know. But I just remember their mall was just phenomenal. They were just so tight. They were packed. And we thought, okay, we stopped them. And suddenly they were able to re-engineer it and get guys off again. But not not to get them off the back of the, the, the mall just to get runners away. They just set it up again and went again. And we said, Geez, how many times do we have to stop this? Mm. And I think Bruce Deans was playing and, and Zinzan Brook and just their back row. Ian Jones was playing that day. 
And I remember sort of thinking, you know, this guy was going to be their, their mainstay. He was going to take on John Eels for the next 10 years. And I remember sort of thinking, looking at this guy, like he, he was anorexic, like he was absolutely, you know, not a New Zealand second row. And I remember I, I was kind of offside at a ruck and he just came in and he said, excuse me, sir, get out of there. Oh, what? <laughs> like, like Gary Wetton, you know, would g- just give you a good kick in, yeah. you know, and I just sort of said, this guy's not going to make it. And they have this amazing facility to turn their players into far better players. So they recognize talent. And then you look at Man Anu. So Man Anu started about seven or eight years ago, and he was just a Bosch merchant, you know, and he couldn't do anything. Now, if you saw him play his pass, last week against England. His passing now is absolutely superb. If Mananu grew up in Cork or in Dublin or wherever, how good a player would he be, do you think? He wouldn't. He just wouldn't. Because the what they do, just the, 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 the whole uh, sort of sphere of, of enlightenment there, of how they do things, how just how efficient they were, it's, it's incredible. But isn't that actually very encouraging uh, from our point of view that... It's it's not just the fact that they have these brilliant players that by some you know they have the rugby gene that means that they're always going to be better than us. If they have the systems in place, as you say, to make Ian Jones a considerably better player or to make Mananu a considerably better player, surely that means that we have the template to aim for, and that's what we should do. Yeah, but we knew that ten years ago. Well, yeah, that's the problem. Probably a hundred years. Uh, ago. One of, yeah, yeah, one of the look and uh, sort of another story. And I, I just heard his voice. Haven't heard his voice in a long time. And it's it's one of the things you have to consider about why, you know, four and a half million here, four and a half million over there. Why are they so much better than us? And every time, so we're professional now, and we're very good at what we do. And still, like if you look at I, when I left the Australia game, thirty-two fifteen, and I said, well, I I played against Australia five or six times, and. You know that was the, that was the standard score then. So all that's happened is the tide has risen. So we're all professionals now, and we're still getting beaten thirty-two fifteen. So what's the difference between what what New Zealand can can do? What's the X factor? I hate using that term, but what is the X factor? And I was in Hong Kong years ago in nineteen eighty-nine uh, for the Hong Kong Sevens, and I was in. Did you go to Joe Bananas? Were you in Hong Kong? I can't possibly comment on that. <laughs> I ended Who up told in, you I was there? <laughs> I ended up in Joe Bananas, myself and Jim Staples, and we got home about sort of quarter to eight in the morning. And uh, the lads are saying, what are you doing up this early, friend? I'm not an early bird at all. And they kind of knew that I'd come direct. And uh, anyway, they killed me in training. And we got back to the Conrad, I don't know, about half 11. And I went, crawled into bed and died. I got up at six, six, half six, and went down to the foyer. I was starving. And I bumped into Bill McLaren and his missus. He, they brought him over to try and get, you know, the voice of rugby and try and get him in and, and market, the, market the game. So I think his missus had food poisoning and he was just down having a bit of dinner. So he said, what are you doing, Fran? I said, well, I'm not well, but I'll have dinner with you if you're, if you're free. So chatting away, you know, who's going to win the, the sevens? And New Zealand were pretty good. Fiji were pretty good. Australia were good. And uh, anyway, chatting away, I didn't, I didn't know Bill that well. I'd met him a, a couple of times. And uh, anyway, I didn't realize this. He worked or he, he served with the Royal Fusiliers and he fought in the Battle of Monte Cassino. And I mean, his life, you know, sort of for the five or six months that he was there, he, he was on the forward lines. And he t- he just, I just said, you know, we were talking about the New Zealanders and what makes them sort of different. And he said, well, one of the New Zealand regiments were there 
and he said the respect for these guys was just phenomenal. So you had Polish, Canadian, English, whatever else, all there. But the guys they sent up to do the toughest fighting were the New Zealanders. And they were the most efficient and they were the most ruthless guys that you've ever come across. And they'd come back off the line and everybody would almost sort of genuflect because they knew how tough these guys were, how determined they were, how everything, everything about them, everything about them in battle was top-notch. Everybody sort of recognised that. And if you look at it, you know, say the Russians in in Second World War lost about 25 million people, but the New Zealanders, as a percentage of their population, lost more than anybody else. And it was down to their bravery and their determination and just... And you see that in their sports. You see that. Their, so there's no wars, no wars going on at the moment. So it just manifests on, on, the, on the rugby field. This should be the sort of challenge that a professional rugby player would relish though. Well, that's the cliche but at the same time an Irish team coming off the back of a disparity in defeat last weekend would those players really be relishing it or is this the last game in the world that you want when confidence is low I think they would be relishing it I don't you know I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the trepidation and a lot of the you know um, fear and all, you know, the, the despair almost at times you see facing the All Blacks a lot of that doesn't really permeate to the team certainly anymore I don't really think it does I think there's enough guys there who understand what it takes to beat the All Blacks the issue is actually doing it you know I don't think the psychological uh, thing is there like it would have been 10 or 15 years ago even after a 16-0 defeat last year no I, like I I, the, the, I really think the issue is 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 that you know it's a six it's you know what about the 16-0 defeat well what about the week before when it was they were dropped away from winning and that's the difference between, I think, being in the team and not being and being on the outside of the team. Because there's no one going out to think next week and that they don't have a chance of winning if everyone plays to their best. Um, they and realizing that everyone would have to play to their best and everything will have to go well. Uh, but if they have if they have a if they are, if they are as good as they can be. They have a chance of winning. So you think yeah, the, England, yeah. for example, they look say England did it last year. So why can't we do it last year? Like in and in New Zealand are in New Zealand the the difference the, like the, the 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 challenge now I don't think is psychological. The challenge is is technical. The reason New Zealand are so 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 strong, and I suppose this is the, maybe the linking into what I said earlier on is that the difference now between the systems and the training and the diet is now that gap is is much much narrower. You know, um, and you see the guys. You know, see the guys who come to play for, uh, like the Kiwi guys who come over to play for the big European teams. And they're they're all excellent players. They're not necessarily always the best guys on the team on the pitch at every time, but they're all they're all when they play for New Zealand, they play at a, at an incredibly accurate, highly skilled level, and um, that's the big. The that for me is a much bigger challenge than the psychological challenge. I was asked about that earlier on today. What's you know what's the it's a psychological difference between and how do Ireland cope psychologically. It's far less of a psychological issue for the players. I think for the public, actually, it's more of a psychological it issue. It could well be. Shane Horgan made the point, though, that, it, of course, he didn't beat them as no Irish rugby player has beaten them, and he found it embarrassing as the years progressed. Did you find it... Is it embarrassing for for a team, for an Irish professional team, not to be able to, once in their history, beat another country, albeit it is New Zealand? Yeah, no, I, I think it is. I think it, it's, it's a big stain on a lot of... Kind of professional players who've achieved a lot in the game, you know, and that's the other difference. You're talking there's a there's in the last five or six years there are guys who've achieved 
a huge amount in world rugby terms. They've been European champions. They've you know they've won Grand Slams or whatever. They but they've been consistently among the best performing teams and individuals in those teams in you know club rugby and world rugby and and have pushed Ireland to a level in the last ten years that you know it, it's a it's about at the threshold of, of however however good it's ever been. But there's a lot of things you know like this. The point Neil has, has made is 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 true, but you're also talking about uh, the combination. You know, if you compare the two countries size wise, like rugby in New Zealand is the national sport. It receives the national sports resources, uh, and approach, and uh, attention and pressure. And there's pressure that comes with that that doesn't exist for Irish rugby. But it's not the number one game in Ireland. It's not the number two game in Ireland. It might be the number three game in Ireland. Maybe. Can I? Uh, Maybe. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there is something to that, you know. I, I just think that if New Zealand played Gaelic football or hurling, they'd knock the shit out of us as well. <laughs> and maybe they would. But, yeah, but is you know. the, no, but the point that Dennis raises is... Okay, if well, why aren't they, well, why aren't they, for example, world beaters at all the other sports they play? Well, I think they perform like, uh, at the Olympics. You know, they consistently... I always look at the, the table, the, the, the medal mm. table, Mm. and see how do we do against New Zealand and they all consistently outperform us mm. consistently and like by a huge number check yeah. it yeah but check you've got to you do have to look at a lot more under there's a lot more different factors you have to look you have to look at budgets for sport you have to look at attitudes for sport you have to, there's a number of different factors I'm not I'm not saying that Ireland should not do better against New Zealand because we're picking from the same sort of uh, pool, but look at the even the numbers of people who play rugby in New Zealand compared to the numbers of mm. people who play Ireland. Like it tells itself. Yeah, if you're looking at the ball sp- primary ball sports, so here we have hurling yeah. and football. It's, it doesn't, doesn't compare. And, and like it's, there's no comparison. Popular. It's yeah. not like you know we do remarkably well against them, considering mm. if you look at it in those terms. But that's irrelevant for the guys who are playing. The guys who are playing on a given day want to 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 feel and and at times legitimately have proven that they've been very close to beating New Zealand. We need New Zealand to play below their best or maybe we need to make them play below their best if we're ever going to have a chance of beating them, Neil. But is there an issue coming into this game at the weekend that they've got what they always have against us, which is a fear of being embarrassed themselves by losing to Ireland, combined with this carrot at the end of the year of being unbeaten for the entire season. They let it slip last year. Is that... I know Dennis is saying it's not all about the psychology of it, but from their point of view, we can't expect that New Zealand might be 1% or 2% off it this weekend. No, I don't think they will. I think where we're at, like, I mean, if you look at Ireland's performance and you look at the first, say, six or seven minutes, uh, and, you know, from the from the very first mistake, so Johnny kicks the ball, misses touch, uh, Devon Toner doesn't adjust himself at the line-out time, we lose the ball, Paul O'Connell gets beaten to the front by Scott Fardy, Sean O'Brien uh, knocks on, lovely angle, lovely cut back inside, knocks the ball on. A minute later, Luke, Luke Marshall gets isolated in contact. So five unforced errors, really, and they are unforced errors in a space of five or six minutes. So mentally, where, where were Ireland? You know, so the whole, the whole game, of, and, uh, and really all it is about is about margin because I, I just cannot see the All Blacks losing this game. Just having a look at the... Olympic medal tallies from 2012, Neil. They oh, back yeah. you up, don't worry. Um, <laughs> in fact, New Zealand won more gold medals than we won medals. They won six golds. They got uh, 13, 13 medals overall to our five. Right. And that five is our best since 1956. So <laughs> let's move away from Take the other sports average, yeah, angle here. Uh, I do want to ask you both about, uh, you've been at these matches the last couple of weeks at the Aviva Stadium. 
we were talking about this in the show on Tuesday, the attempts to create an atmosphere. Now, I always find it, it's hard to judge in a game such as that against New Zealand when you get whacked 32-15, because no matter what happens, whether there's loads of sound effects, no sound effects, music, no music, it's not going to be great. But does it make it an even more miserable experience when you've got a, a heartbeat pounding around the stadium for TMOs and jump, uh, jump around by House of Pain and these kind of things blaring out when a penalty goes over now? Well, I think it's kind of it's now accepted. Like I mean, so sport is morphing into entertainment. So if you go along to an NFL game, or a, you know, I went to see the Yankees play during the summer. You know, and and the guys that were sweeping the 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 diamond, you know, started doing YMCA. You know, with, the, with their sweeties. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was just fantastic. So it's kind of fantastic. I, I find when you don't care about what's going on. True, and I've, true. I, I, but it I makes you to, don't care. You yeah. yeah, Like I, I, I have look. I, I go to rock concerts, and I, I, I like. Go, I, I'm trying to keep up with Dennis, who is, you know, pretty one of the foremost musicals in the country. We correct, know that, Neil. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> and uh, I, I bow to his uh, his superior knowledge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, playing loud rock music at a, at a rugby game, you know, and and. Having it sort of fed and and everything like even from the team being being named, uh, I I just I just don't agree with it. You know, you don't like even the bit where they name the team up on the big screen. No, like the Alan, oh, no, Alan Parsons that. project. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just I just think like the, I mean, it 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 diminishes a crowd's ability to support themselves. You know, to to actually start cheering for the team. You know, because if you're if you're spoon feeding them there and prompting them to distracting do, them, yeah, it is. It's you think it is a distraction, Dennis? Well, I do. Yeah, like I, I think it's uh, as far as that it's you know it's part and parcel of what sport is about, and you know the, the you see what other stadiums are doing, and then it's 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 replicated. I don't. I actually just don't think it adds a lot to it. I think if if the idea is to create um, some uh, events or some you know some ad smack extra atmosphere or to and presumably it. we're presuming that is the idea but I presume that's the idea I, like, I just don't think that it does a huge amount it doesn't for me I suppose and maybe you see this is, a, this is the difference as well is that you, you always see these things through the prism of what's gone before but if you're a kid and you're going along Lansdowne Road for the first time and that's all you know well then that just becomes that's the game you know and that becomes the start of it but, but you you were asking Owen about you know the atmosphere in Lansdowne Road, you know, kind of when we were playing and before it became mm-hmm. the Aviva, you know. Yeah, just before because I, I do sometimes think when we have these conversations, there is a danger of being a bit too nostalgic about the old Lansdowne Road. Um, there were great days there, but there were some fairly, fairly poor uh, atmospheres that I remember as a kid. I mean, if you if you know a couple of times when, when we were out training beforehand and you're running around and and you, you have you know a lot of the, and they they turn up they used to turn up on time, you know, so there was no. You know, there was no bars around inside and, and, and other worlds. And they would, you know, they'd, they'd roar at you, they'd shout at you, you know, and, and they'd give you encouragement. But if there's loud rock music on, you, you're not going to hear them because it, it drowns you out. Yeah, like the, the, you know, if you want to see a contrast between, for example, 2001 and, to, and the match on Sunday before the ball is even kicked off, if you catch a look at the video... You know, I'd say the ground was probably full 15 minutes before the match. and Everyone was in the stadium. When we ran out of the pitch, like the roar was, it was a November night, very good weather actually. It wasn't that cold, but it was kind of that crisp evening, a great atmosphere. But the the big difference is, as I said, the, the roar for the teams when we came out, like you really knew as a team, like the game starts, started as soon as you ran out of the pitch. Now, um, the bars are all full. The teams come out of the pitch, there's nobody in the stadium. There's, like it's it's less than a third full. Cha-ching. 
and just so you know we can sell another few to you know beers to get more money to generate for the stadium and that's that's what it's about it's not about it's not put it this way it's not in the team's interest that that's the situation it's not for the benefit of the team and it's not helping the team that that's the way it is so that's yeah. therefore not being a, that's not a consideration 2001 was a particularly good atmosphere we'll stick that game up on Facebook and on Twitter as well so people can maybe have a look at that and see what we're looking for from supporters at the weekend and it's not even we're not necessarily talking about the, the if the temptation is there to go to the bar a lot of fans are probably going to go to the bar even though you would you would hope that some sort of notion of patriotism would have everything. Yeah, you just gotta they just gotta bring there. it in, they've gotta close the bar fifteen minutes before the game. That's mm. the way that that's that's ends that decision. Our you know? predictions, well, I think we know who is likely to win. Exact score prediction, yeah. Uh I don't know. Like I all I'm looking for is just an improvement. I mean, Ireland mentally were a million miles away from where they needed to be, you know, and they missed they missed fifteen tackles. Again, if you want to beat any of the sands sides, you've got to be up at 95%. They were down at 79%. And Australia physically just dominated them. So everywhere across, defensively, you know what they were doing on the ball, what they were doing off the ball, they were a million miles away from where they needed to be. So they'll need, you know, just in terms of that performance, they need to up a, a huge amount. They won't win... I think a good day's performance. We haven't we haven't heard the New Zealand team yet. I'd say there'd be three or four sort of um, non regulars playing, but somebody like Aaron Cruden was just as good. If Ireland can keep it to you know twenty five point margin, that's a good day's work. I think. I think the um, yeah. I'm, heard, I'm just hearing from that. If, no, we, if we lose that, by um, less than twenty, if we lose by twenty four points, to beat, it's not bad. any of the time, any times Ireland have beat the big Southern Hemisphere sides, you have a. Ireland has to concede less than 10 penalties so it's usually no more than 8 um, less than 10 missed tackles like you're saying um, so those two things have to happen to start with um, I think that the, the issue for, for Ireland for this this weekend is that New Zealand as I said the, the, the systems, the organisation um, that'll all be improved on, on last week certainly from an Irish perspective if I thought last week was as good as Ireland were I'd be a lot more worried than I am, mm-hmm. um, and you know I know they're a lot better, and I know they'll be a lot better this week, um, and they have enough guys on that team to understand exactly what's required to beat the All Blacks. As I say, the issue hasn't been now understanding what's what's what you have to do is being able to do it, uh, and get fifteen guys to be able to do it on on the day um, is a huge challenge because what New Zealand do is that everything is so excellent. There's so little errors. There's so little drop balls. There's so little rudimentary mistakes their game is very simple but it's just executed brilliantly and that's what they'll bring on Saturday so you know it'll be it'll be a tough day for Ireland um, uh, you know I, 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 I never really know scores because scores now don't mean, seem to mean a huge amount I never never really knew a score even when I won a game <laughs> what, what the score was but I think you know if Ireland can be within uh, two scores um it would be it would be a significant improvement on last week, and then if they can get to that close uh, as as the final whistle approaches, then, then a few things can happen. Last word, Neil. Would you recommend that Paul O'Connell brings the Irish team face to face with the New Zealand hacker, <laughs> a la Willie Anderson, nineteen? Uh, with, with a with a slightly, I don't know, a little jump at the end of it. No, I, th- I think the uh, I think the referees are told and touch judge or whatever their assistant referees that if you encroach within a certain amount of it's time, the ten meter line is, apparently, yeah, you're yeah. Not allowed. If if there's any encroachment in, then they just rush in and, and kind of stop it. No. Uh, what exactly will they do? I wonder. What will they do? <laughs> what would they do? What would they, oh, what would they do, do if that happened? Yeah. You know? 
It seems well, a bit I mean, ridiculous. if you even add to the intimidation factor, if you're taking on the referee and the 15 <laughs> hacker performing New Zealanders. Well, in, in, in fairness, like when Willie and everybody knew what was going to what was going to happen exactly, they were going to face them down. Everybody in the squad knew what was going to happen mm. then. So, uh, you know, it's they could back it up. They backed it up. They actually gave a good performance, and New Zealand struggled. They won in handy enough in the end. I think Johnny Gallagher got a try in the last kind of, sort of few minutes, but. They backed it up with a good performance, so if you're going to go down that road, back it up. Yeah. Mm. Lads, enjoy the game. Brilliant stuff. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just... The bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football, available on irishtimes.com Second Captains and iTunes from 6pm tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. tonight. I don't know about you, Murph, but Mm. Joe Bananas in Hong Kong does not sound like the kind of place where good things are going to happen for a rugby team. You're you're not really going to get to the nub of your tactical approach by spending a lot of time in Joe Joe Bananas. In Hong Kong. Yeah, I'm not not thinking that it's... Mm. Kind of like you know what what was the um, the culture club you know with in West Ham in the early sixties you know something tells me you know that it's not that sort of cafe you know let's all sit around and have a coffee and think about the very latest innovations in sevens <laughs> and indeed fifteen aside world rugby. Luke Marshall, uh, the news is in today that he has been released back to Ulster to play for them against Edinburgh on Friday night which presumably means that Gordon Darcy is going to be the starting inside centre on Sunday against New Zealand which may also have the knock-on effect or that might be partly because Paddy Jackson is likely to play at number 10. They are going to give Johnny Sexton as much time as possible but looks as though they, um, they're they going to put Darcy in at number 12 either way or else they're going to ask Luke Barsh to play a lot of rugby over the weekend. <laughs> He's a young lad, you know, plenty of, plenty of gas in the legs. Coming up at 6 o'clock tonight. That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to leave it here. I'd say it to you, folks, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Twanfield, and we'll see them all. What are you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> oh, Captain, my Captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we saw this one. Port is near, the bells I hear, the people all exulting, while follow eyes the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But oh, heart, 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 oh, the bleeding drops of red, where on the deck my captain lies, fallen cold and dead. Luckily, Robbie Keane is. <laughs> good reaction, only, good crowd reaction. Only the well first out, well out, kid, well couple out. of words of that famous verse apply to Robbie Keane. Um, the the is trip is not done, the prize not won, and Robbie Keane, fortunately, uh, still very much alive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're going to be talking to him on second captain's football he's a little later that, on. He's not even that nautical, you know, so really it is just... He is going, you're, you're going to have to meet him just as soon as we get these, uh, this show finished up. As soon as we get this out of the way, straight <laughs> up to, to uh, talk to Robbie Keane. Yeah, and Richie Sadler will also... Richie Sadler is going to be treated as well, yeah. Some, some pretty good stuff right there. Murph, let's get a quick pee bezo in, why not? That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? You got the potatoes yeah. and the puchine. Huh? And the puchine. Oh, yeah, there you are. <laughs> Confession time, Owen. I love young people. I love them out there doing their best around the world and not a bother on them. 
and so we celebrate them here every week via the medium of Pierce Brosnan Emigrant Shoutouts. And as ever, we thank Pierce for his continuing support of this really, really, really excellent slot. Yeah. So, um, an email here from Mark Duggan. Gentlemen, a photo post Philadelphia Marathon taken by my good lady wife, Jessica Monk. Managed to set a new best of three hours, 29 minutes, 20 seconds. Not bad. The mythical three and a half hour barrier. Yeah, broken, smashed. Broken, smashed by... As Roddy DeLady would say. But uh, more importantly, remember to pack a hashtag PBezo sign. Apologies for the gurning. At this point, I wasn't really sure which way... Oh, that's incredible. See, if you're not a marathon runner such as myself, this, to, mm. to have the presence of mind, not only to bring... Yeah. To prepare a P. Bezos sign, but to actually, did he unleash it himself or did his wife have it? Uh, well, no, he, he he says that he, he managed to pack it himself, so he obviously had it tucked into his sock. But, no, but, season, but there's a photograph of him holding yeah. it as I, he's running. Well, no, no, at the finish line. So he not, ran. Not, that's not as good. It's not as good. It's still pretty good. <laughs> okay, well. I bought okay. it around the, 20, on Mark around the 25 mile mark would have been just perfect. As he's the in, cramps are really kicking in. Yeah, he's in Boston anyway and he listens to the, to the show religiously, Congrats. so fair play. Uh, hey lads, I'm an Irishman living abroad, Luxembourg, not very exotic, and I have a query. I'm coming back to Dublin this week for a trip home. I'm planning to go to the Blizzard event in Friday, which I believe is chaired by Owen McDevitt. If I get a photo there with my hashtag PBezo sign, does it count? Cheers, Neil. Don't think so. Uh, it, it is only no. in the Sugar Club in Dublin. Yeah, no, Neil, that doesn't count. And this it's only is about like, five minutes from where we broadcast from. It doesn't really count as emigrating. It's not really going to work, is it? But uh, this is his at least his sixth attempt to get a PBezo sign. <laughs> Although I have to say that shoehorning a mention of a Moneybags McDevitt Nixer is probably not a bad way <laughs> uh, to go about getting your email read out. Gareth Fox sent uh, us one from Oklahoma on Twitter. He was at the most recent Oklahoma City Thunder uh, basketball game. And I read out a PBezo from Stefan Wilkins from Brooklyn last week. Turns out he was half cut sending the email, as he says himself, which is disgraceful. And he got his name and his place of residence Incorrect. Uh, well, he, he didn't really, but he didn't include either, so I had to presume from his email address and uh, whatnot. Anyway, I'm happy to clear it up, and also to clear up that it's not, in fact, Stefan White, world-renowned Louth Golador. Oh, just, yeah. Just some bum off the streets in Manhattan. Oh. <laughs> I see that. I do want to also mention, if this isn't to do with P. Bezo, but okay. just, I know the Ashes cricket isn't to everybody's taste, but it's just something uh, I picked up this morning, and I... S- a nice story. One of England's players, Stuart Broad, Ken, mm. was getting hammered by the Aussie media before the start of the match and being booed mercilessly by the Australian fans for having the impertinence, Murph, not to declare himself out in the last Ashes. Is that essentially yeah. it? Yeah. Well, he, 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 knew he'd been, he knew he'd been done, but he refused to walk. And that's not good sportsmanship yeah. in cricket. So he was getting absolutely destroyed, in particular the Courier-Mail newspaper in Brisbane, where the first test has just started, which called him a smug pommy cheat. On his front page. <laughs> uh, Broad went out, got his booze, took all of that, destroyed the Australian batting attack, and then arrived at a press conference afterwards with a copy of the Courier Mail tucked under his arm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I liked it's it. Pretty funny, I must say. And a lot of people don't really like Stuart Double Broad. win for the Courier Mail, I would call that. <laughs> Completely, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, that's the paper that we said they were going to refuse to carry any photographs or print his name for the entire duration of the ashes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he showed him. I mean, in fairness, a lot of people do dislike Stuart Broad a lot. But I have to hand it to him. On this particular occasion, he has uh, he's he's uh, shown up pretty well. Time now for US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series. Touchdown! 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 Touchd
Brian Murphy, good to talk to you as always. How are you? Great to talk to you boys. Always fired up after the intro. And yeah, we're on the eve of uh, Thanksgiving week next week. And uh, 49ers losing another game. People are panicking here in San Francisco. But I'm keeping my head above water, guys. I am staying calm and uh, glad to talk to you. Are you getting a lot of... St- I know you're like Colin Kaepernick's one of his biggest uh, uh, advocates public in the public li- in, the, in the public life of San Francisco. Are you getting some stick? <laughs> Stick would be the uh, beginning of the description, Uh-oh. Kieran. Yes, right. I am. I'm, I'm fending off sticks like a. Uh, I'm like a, a swordsman. I'm like a, uh, a fencer. I'm fending <laughs> off sticks, uh, thrusting and parrying. Yes, the wolves are out, man. They are. Uh, it's just so funny, man. Sports fans. They just. They love. They will turn on a dime. And this guy was in the Super Bowl nine months ago, but he's lost two games in a row. But more importantly, they have the the lowest ranked passing offense in the NFL. And that even for a cap. An ardent Kaepernick supporter like myself, you have to acknowledge some of the reality to, uh, to get where we're going. But I still believe in the kid. I think there's many factors contributing to it. I just need him to relax. I think they'll beat the Redskins on Monday night, and, and, and they will calm the waters. That's my prediction. Brian, this past Monday would have been the 50th birthday of Len Bias, um, mm. a man who passed away many years ago. What do you think of when I say the name Len Bias? Wow. Um, right in my generational wheelhouse, that is a dramatic uh, name for anybody who followed basketball in the 1980s, and that would be me. I followed basketball quite closely in the 1980s. Those were the great Lakers and Celtics rivalries, even though my beloved Golden State Warriors were not a factor. Everybody had a dog in the Lakers-Celtic hunt. I mean, that was, uh, you know, Magic and Bird, Bird and Magic, you name it. And Len Bias was a sensational game-changing basketball player out of the University of Maryland who was a first-team All-American player who had all the skills you wanted, a big guy, six foot eight, who had uh, agility and could handle the ball and could be a power player and could shoot it, and stunningly was drafted by the Boston Celtics. It was amazing. It was a case of the rich getting richer. The Celtics at the peak of their uh, powers with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish swung a draft day trade in June of 1986 to land Lenny Bias with the second pick in the 1986 draft. It was an amazing coup. The Celtics were going to be set for the next 10 years. I mean, you know, Larry Bird won, what, three titles? Larry Bird was going to win five more. You know, with Len Bias and Larry Bird on the same team, it was going to be a mind-blowing experience. And instead, guys, the mind-blowing thing was two days after he was drafted, he died, and it was one of the most stunning sports moments of the 1980s, without question, because this guy was Superman and was beloved and was going to be a Celtic, and he died two days after he was drafted. What made it worse, even worse than the tragedy of his death, was that we found out it was cocaine-related, and he was one of these guys you never associated with any kind of bad abuse or anything. He wasn't a bad egg. He seemed like a good egg. He came from a nice family and everything, and... It was just an absolutely stunning moment where this this absolute um, just this force on the basketball court was cut down, and then it was of course found to be cocaine and a heart arrhythmia, and all the repercussions that came from that too. I mean, you know, both on the court basketball, what what could the Celtics have been without with Len Bias, and then off the court too, societally, what's going on, you know, with the kids of the '80s, what's going on with cocaine and college kids or cocaine and young kids and 
it was a terrifying moment for for everybody and a tragic moment in the sports world. He was the subject of one of the first series of 30 for 30 movies and uh, the director in that case tried to do a few things, tried to talk a bit about the, the legacy which we can discuss maybe, but also he tried to get to the bottom of what actually happened that night of the sequence of events up to the point where he gets back to his college is fairly well known. He's drafted, he's flown into Boston, I think, then starts to celebrate, heads back to meet his friends. They go back to their, their dorm and college, at which point cocaine is taken. And I don't know if it's ever fully discovered whether he was, a, I think the implication has always seemed to have been that he wasn't necessarily a regular user at that stage, but that uh, he's certainly celebrating pretty hard that night and ultimately uh, it ended in tragic circumstances. No, you're right. That that was kind of what I alluded to a little earlier about him. It was so stunning because he was not known to be a bad, bad egg, a guy who consorted with kind of unsavory elements. He was one of these shining lights, uh, Len Bias, you know, wow, whoever gets Len Bias is set. And you're right. The the details of the case became sort of, you know, these things get so, these things get so complicated when when a tragedy like this hits and you start finding out the things that happened behind the scenes. You know, his friend who had the cocaine wound up getting, you know, uh, prosecuted by a grand jury for a, a little bit about uh, his possession of cocaine and his dis- distribution of cocaine. It also wound up resonating all the way up through the University of Maryland's uh, athletic department because it was found out that – well, they had a legendary coach at the time named Lefty Drizel. He was one of these guys. He was kind of a classic um, uh, southern basketball coach. He was a real quotable guy. He had been a big winner. He was kind of a, uh, a media darling in a little bit. And there was a story that he had in the hours after Bias's death encouraged the, you know the people the, the people involved to get the drugs out of the room almost like a cover up of sports or and so uh the, the Bias family got very furious of course at Maryland and Drizelle. they also found out that Bias hadn't gone to class by the way that was a whole other aspect of this whole thing was that another athlete who had been said to have graduated never went to class at Maryland, and it wound up costing the, the head coach, Lefty Drizel. He had to resign in the cloud of controversy, as did the athletic director at Maryland. And the guy who, his buddy who supplied the cocaine, uh, I guess, wound up going to jail, or actually, I think, might actually have been acquitted on the case, but it just got very ugly, very sordid, and it was a sad thing. And you know, a lot of people, too, when they write the retrospectives now, it's funny how kind of, you know, when you look back through the lens of time, you realize maybe the impact something had that you didn't realize at the time. Well, the 80s were a huge, I mean, it was, the, it was the era of Ronald and Nancy Reagan in the White House, and she was doing her Just Say No drug campaign, which, you know, a lot of people were mocking or, you know, saying it was not realistic. But a lot of people kind of look back on time who grew up in the 80s were really scared by what happened to Len Bias. And, and I can't count the number of people who it affected, but it certainly affected so a degree of people away from taking cocaine. So it was almost like it sort of uh, endorsed or amplified Nancy Reagan's Just Say No Drug campaign. And it's funny, you know, you don't think about it now. I mean, sure, there are always stories in the sports world, even today in 2013, of guys who, you know, head down the wrong road and drugs. But in that very draft of 1986, Len Bias was taken with a second pick. A guy named Chris Washburn was taken in the third pick by my Warriors out of North Carolina State, he too was a drug case. Now, he didn't die. He just, his career never took off because of drugs. And you look back on the 80s and you see so many cases of that. And truthfully, you don't see as many cases like that today in 2013. I mean, now steroids is the big scandal, not cocaine. And in some ways, I guess the Len Bias tragedy had an effect on that. It, it steered people away from it.
Yeah, I, I saw it described. I saw Led Bias's death being described as the most effective anti-drug campaign that was ever that was ever waged. And I suppose you would have been a teenager just out of your teens at that time, and that's they're exactly the people who were who were so so affected by this. But Karen, did it not then? Because we've been talking about this, did it not then sort of amplify and what Brian talks about there—the war on drugs that was going on? Some of which wasn't necessarily seen. I think at this stage, Brian, all these years later, some of, some of what you talk about there wasn't necessarily that effective. The way that the well, clearly it wasn't because you know the the, the drug problem in America hasn't exactly gone away over those years. That's I mean totally true. I mean this is a huge topic, obviously, and the drug problem has not gone away. And in fact, in in many ways, there's new dimensions to it that marijuana is becoming more and more legal around the country. There's many states in the United States now that have legalized marijuana. Colorado and Washington most recently in the last election cycle. Of course, cocaine and drugs remains a huge problem in the projects, in the, in the, in the ghettos of America. Yes, yes, yes. I would just argue that, or sort of, I would submit that I think fewer athletes are getting felled by drugs than they did in the 80s. I think it was a more prevalent athletic thing in the, in the 1980s. Even in baseball, the Pittsburgh Pirates, who were, won the World Series in 1979, kind of fell apart in the early 80s, and it was found that their clubhouse, their locker room, was essentially uh, just a cocaine distribution center. So um, you, you heard more about it in the 80s than you hear now, but yeah, of course, societally, that's a war that I don't know if will ever be won. Yeah, sport you know? is interesting, Brian, because I, I, I guess certainly around the 80s and into the 90s, and particularly into the last decade, the, you're probably right, recreational drugs, as, they're, as they tend to be called among athletes, probably wasn't as big a thing, but it kind of turned into the performance-enhancing uh, side of things instead. Isn't that funny? Yeah, mm. now, I mean, that's the drug scandal of today. You know, guys, like, it's hard to overstate how chilling the death was. I was 18 going on 19 when Len Bias died, and it, it, it's, not, it's not at all analogous to the John F. Kennedy ass- assassination, but in the sports world, it was one of those moments of where were you when you heard Len Bias died. I certainly can volunteer. I had just finished up my freshman year at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, and my parents were coming down to pick me up and drive me home, and I was packing up my dorm room, and I heard it on the radio, old-fashioned radio, guys. I heard it on the radio, and we were just like, you, you fell back onto your bed and just sat there and stared at the wall. Uh, this, this guy who was your peer, essentially, he was 22, I was 18, you know, he had just left Maryland, I was in college, you know, I came from, I was attending a school that had a big basketball program and had stars like Reggie Miller on the team, you know, and it just, just, it was like the, it was, it was, it was an unforgettable moment in time that stunned you because of his incredible potential. I mean, the thought was that he was going to be like a Larry Bird type of player. You know, we would t- I'd be talking to you guys about Bird, Magic, and Lenny Bias. Now, you know, there's no guarantees. Who knows what could have happened, but... It was that effective, and you know, in researching it a little bit too, in reading, you find that in, in Congress, the U.S. Congress, even a couple years later, amplified their anti-drug act, and some people call that the Len Bias law. You know, and and many kids, you you can go on the internet now and just Google Len Bias fifty or whatever, and you can find people are writing essays about it who grew up in the eighties who were. I don't want to say scared straight because, as we've acknowledged, the drug problem will always be a problem, but. Certainly a few people, a number of people were scared by the Len Bias story. Brian, you mentioned that the idea behind, part of the idea behind drafting him for the Celtics was to continue their dynasty as they had at the time and their championship winning form. 
How big a negative impact did his death? How badly did it shake up the Celtics organization? And what happened to them in the years after after that? It's a great, yeah, it's a great question, and it is, and it's true. It did. I mean, Larry Bird at that time, you know, the, the tragedy of Bird was his health. He was, uh, and he has admitted now in recent years that he he was looking forward to playing with Lenny Bias because his back was hurting so bad that he wanted to fade into the sunset and and sort of like you know hand the torch over to Lenny Bias. But Bird hung on till about the early 90s, and then that was it. Then they went kaput, guys, for a decade. And the 90s was a lost decade for the uh, the Boston Celtics. It wasn't until they kind of got back with Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, and they didn't win a title again until, what was it, 2009? I have the year in front of me, 2008? or when, yeah. Yeah, 2008 with uh, you know Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen, the big three. So that was, what, 80... 87 was their last title, I think, right? And then, and then 2008. So what's that? Thir- 21 years. So yeah, I mean, you got to presume that that the Len Bias death was one of the chief reasons why the Celtics fell into decay through the entire 1990s. If you would have thought about it, you know, the Pistons came on in the late 1980s with Isaiah Thomas and Dennis Rodman, the Bad Boys, Joe Dumars, and then of course MJ entered the scene. Michael Jordan entered the scene. First in '91, and then started ripping off, you know, six titles. I know I don't know how Len Bias would have fared against Michael Jordan. They did play against each other in college; they were peers, you know. Uh, Len Bias was in Maryland, and Michael Jordan's at North Carolina. Those are two Atlantic Coast Conference schools, ACC. So Bias and Jordan knew each other. They would have been an amazing rivalry. Maybe it would have been that rival that Jordan always never really had. You know, everybody always said the one thing that the Jordan era was lacking was a true foil. You know, he just kind of ran, he kind of had his way with Carl Malone and the Utah Jazz and Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns and Clyde Drexler and the Portland Trailblazers. Who knows, maybe Len Bias and the Celtics would have been an amazing rival for Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons and Michael Jordan and the Bulls, and that's what they did not get, and instead they got nothing. They fell off the radar. Yeah, I find it fascinating, Brian, that Red Auerbach, the legendary coach of that Boston Celtics team, said that it was the most shocked that Bostonians had been this is when they heard of the the news of Len Bias' death since the death of JFK, which is obviously timely, uh, given it's 50 years since JFK died this week. But what strikes me about that is he wasn't even a Boston, well, technically he was a Boston Celtic player, if only for about 48 hours, whatever about his college friends and people who'd followed him growing up. I've, I found it quite, quite striking that um, the people of the team that he'd only just joined would appear to have formed quite a connection with him. Maybe that just speaks to unfulfilled the potential. unfulfilled potential. Plus, I suppose, the power of college sports, which we speak about quite a lot. This was a guy who was going to be a star for them, and they already seemed to have accepted him, even though he'd never played for them. Yeah, it's hard to describe why it, he was so um, connected to this. I mean, there was, uh, he's right. It was that way. It was... He was that much of a can't-miss guy, even though, interestingly, he was not the number one pick in the draft. Brad Doherty went to the Cleveland Cavaliers with the first pick out of North Carolina, but that's because he was a true center, and everybody always says you've got to get a true center when you've got to get one. So he was the number two pick in the NBA draft. Then again, Jordan wasn't the number one pick in the draft either. But it's true. I, mean, I, don't, I, I don't think Auerbach was overstating the case. First of all, you have to understand how big the Celtics were at that time. You know, the Red Sox weren't winning World Series, and the Patriots certainly weren't winning Super Bowls. Tom Brady had not been uh, invented yet as a New England Patriot. So the Celtics were really – the Boston Bruins had won Stanley Cups, but the Celtics were, the, were absolutely number one. They'd come off the Bill Russell 11 titles era and had gone into the Larry Bird three-title era. 
And so they were the number one team in Boston, no question. And for them to add this can't-miss kid to this already loaded team. And there was something about Len Bias, too, that was likable. He wasn't – and it's the third time I've said this, in this but he wasn't – he was a good egg. He was a likable personality. That's the thing. Some guys you get shady. You know, some guys you're like, man, that guy's a little eh, – you know, I don't know if I want him on a team. He's a character question. Len Bias's character was never in question. He was going to be – uh, an absolute, you know, teammate, a stalwart. He was a Celtic. He was the next great Celtic. So it, the connection that Auerbach makes is, you know, I think, like I said, it is hard to analogize a president to a sports star, but the same kind of shock hit. And it's true. And if you talk to New Englanders, I'm out, I'm out in California when this happens. It affected me. If you talk to New Englanders, there's probably a still a part of them that's still affected by it. That's why they did a 30 for 30 on him. I mean, can you imagine doing an entire movie on a guy who never even played a, a, a dribble of NBA basketball? This was also, guys, we have to remember, too, the era where college players didn't go one and done. Nowadays, college players play one year in college. It's all they have to do before they can turn pro. So they're often turning pro before, A, their name gets to be famous enough to be ingrained in our psyche, and B, their game is ready enough to make an impact. Almost none of them are able to come in and step in right away and be impactful players. Lenny Bias finished four years at Maryland, and when you, in, in those days, college basketball was bigger than it is now because you got to know the guys for a really long time. So we all got to know Lenny Bias, you know, came on as a sophomore, and then a junior, and then a senior, and now you really whet your appetite for the NBA, and that's something that's definitely been lost in this era of quick jumping to the pros. We're losing that connection to college kids that we see grow up and get ready to play. But, of course, they want the money. You can't blame them. They want to jump in and get their dough, and a lot of them do. And then it's sink or swim. Many of them drown and and never make it uh, despite their potential, but some guys do make it. But the Lenny Bias four-year guy, Jordan was too, uh, that day is gone. Yeah, Brian, brilliant. Thank you. As always, guys. Yeah, it's interesting to hear Brian talk about how – deeply everybody in America of his kind of generation mm. would have felt the the loss of such a talented young sports person, uh, particularly Bostonians. And Bill Simmons, who is from Boston himself, you, you pointed this uh, pointed me in the direction of this piece earlier on, where if we can tweet a uh, link to it, I think afterwards, uh, it was a piece he wrote a number of years ago, actually, probably 10, 12 years mm. ago at this stage. And he describes his reaction when he heard of the death. He just one of these things where he's just wandering the streets aimlessly for five, six hours, absolutely no ability to take in what he's just heard and it continued to affect him to that day and actually one of the 30 for 30 movies which uh, are uh, Bill Simmons' uh, baby Bill Simmons productions as such uh, or his baby as you say one of them centres around Len Bias and yeah. a lot of the uh, circumstances surrounding his death and actually that 30 for 30 is a funny one I've seen it and it, it's one of the most interesting subjects and it has everything that a good documentary need, a brilliant uh, interviewees. He's got some of the most important people. His mother, who's just an incredible individual, one of his friends who was in the dorm that day. In fact, possibly a couple of people were in that dorm that, the day that he died. But it's one of those documentaries that I think has too many people then, a few extraneous interviews, which you don't necessarily need. Maybe it went a little bit too far, but it's uh, a yeah, amazing story. story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of... Um yeah, it, it just it's it's just such, it's so sad that he he didn't even have one year in the NBA, and you could sort of make or break, you could decide one way or another whether he was actually going to make it. There's just so many questions over a guy who, you know, two days after he gets drafted, I mean, it's insane. Really. You want to bring something to our listeners' attention before we wrap things up? Oh yeah, well, something that people missed from our shows over the summer are the local Gaelic games uh, commentaries, and we played some classics of the genre. I think you'll agree over the last couple of months, but the GA doesn't hang up its hat in September, you know. <laughs> Uh, and the club championships are a fertile ground for more salt of the earth 
Radio Gold. So Mount Leinster Rangers, the Carlow champions, beat Ballybold and St. Andrews from Dublin in the Leinster Club Championship last week. And Casey Allure were, were on hand to describe the action. Brendis, Brendan Hennessy on play-by-play with Terence Kelly, Terence Kelly on colour, who has recognised that every colour man needs a catchphrase. And <laughs> I'm just saying that not every co-commentator knows that. I'm just saying... So not only does he say, I'm just saying a lot, and he does say it, I'm, I'm just saying, uh, he also manages to sound unbelievably similar to Richie Cavanagh in that clip. I mean, it's unbelievable. Sent down the field, young Deere burned a 19-year-old whiskey from Cornell and passes to the brother. I'm just saying, off the ball, like, there's a bit of action, but I'm just saying that that was from pure frustration. I'm just saying, Eddie Bourne ratted the net. <laughs> I love that. I think that's my favourite of the entire year. That's I us do done. That. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, all. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks, Alan. Look Thanks, forward Ken. to Ken Early meeting Robbie Keane face to face. We'll have that for you in second captain's football. Thanks for listening. It's fun, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 